Hello, everyone. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your host, Valerie. And boy, am I excited to be with you all today. I know I usually say that, and I always mean it, but today is extra special because once again, I have friend and colleague, Taylor Petrie, by my side. Well, he's not by my side. You are on the, the computer screen, but hi, Taylor. Hello. It's great to be here. It is so good to have you here with me. We have a daunting task before us, but I think we're going to have a good time doing it. And hopefully you on the side of listening are going to have a wonderful time and hopefully a really enlightening experience listening to Taylor and I talk not only during this episode, but for the next, uh, well, we haven't really exactly, we think probably this might go four episodes because we have a really great lineup here. We are going to deconstruct and really pick apart Taylor Petrie's book, Tabernacles of Clay. And this is, it for me, this is not unusual, but I'll start looking at it and thinking, hey, there's a few things we could probably say about it. Then I start you know, getting deeper in and it's like, oh, wow, there's more. And then there's more and then there's more. And next thing you know, there's a, there's a series. And this is no exception here with Tabernacles of Clay. We are doing this specifically uh, to honor our friends and loved ones here in and around the Church of Jesus Christ, who are LGBTQ plus, because this is a, my in my opinion, this is maybe one of the most important books written of our time to help educate us here in the Latter Day Saint space around these issues. It is just ugh, I can't say enough about it, and I know I I always talk about it. So now it's like finally I'm going to actually t- we're going to jump in. So before we get started, though, I wanted to do a little bit of a uh, setting of the stage here. For some of you, and I know this is one of the greatest compliments that I get um, here on the podcast, is that this is one of those podcasts that I am really proud when I hear this, that people share with their more traditional Latter-day Saint friends and loved ones. And that to me is a big deal, that this is something that I hope, and uh, by your reports, evidence shows that people can listen to on kind of the wider range of the Latter-day Saint spectrum. Those who are more progressive, there are some who have left the church, there are some who are make, making their way in the um, peripheries of the church, and some people who have family and loved ones that are somewhere um, on the edge of the inside or the outside, and you share these with your more orthodox or more traditional family members. So just for the quick second as we start, I'm going to talk to you on the more orthodox side. This is maybe going to be a little bit of a challenging read or listen and I want to just let you know, I do see you. We see you. We understand it's challenging when sometimes our paradigms are complicated. And what Taylor and I are going to endeavor to do, and I know he does this so beautifully, and that's why I respect you so much, Taylor, is that we are on the side of integrity and truth-telling and just talking about challenging things in a way that is very, very respectful. And so what we're really going to be doing and is going to be sort of peppered throughout all of our conversations for the next several episodes uh, is an analysis of the church's handling of the LGBTQ issue. And it is a big topic. It's not only the church's handling of the issue, but there's almost like, I think about this as like a Russian nesting dolls sort of a situation. Like we've got the church itself, which is nested in culture, and there's there's issues of LGBTQ, but then if you go out, if you, you swing out a little bit, there's gender issues. And then there you swing out a little bit and there's racial issues. And you swing out and all of these are nested in issues of power and, and hierarchy. And so it's a tough conversation to have. I think it's so important for us to have this conversation and uh, to do so in a way that is both respectful of the earnestness of those who have historically and currently uh, led the church 
and to just recognize that well-meaning people doing the best that they can nested in their own culture are going to get things wrong. And it is okay for us as earnest scholars, thinkers, leaders, people that love others and love Jesus Christ and are trying to be their disciples, that we shine a light on big pictures so that we as a community can all become more whole, which is also a way for us all to become more holy. My goodness, I'm going to get a little choked up even before we start. So I think that's a, that's a good place for us to perhaps pivot over to the actual conversation. Thank you for your patience, Taylor. And let's go ahead and have you get us started on a little bit of two questions to get us going. Number one, give us a general overview of the Tabernacles of Clay and then talk to us about why you chose to take on this very large project. Well, let me let me reverse the order because the uh, you, you know, the, the project always comes, uh, at the end of the, the motives, I guess, you know, sure. so I, I began, uh, to take an interest as I think many Latter-day Saints did in, um, the, the growing issues around gender and sexuality, especially the church's political efforts around same-sex marriage throughout the 1990s and 2000s. That was sort of the beginning of my adulthood. I, I literally, uh, you know, went on my mission and during my mission, the proclamation of the family is released. It sort of is this like defining moment. And, uh, and that sort of comes to define so much of then the next several decades. And so that was sort of coming of age in that era. And, you know, those were the, the issues that were on many Latter-day Saints minds as we were paying attention to what was going on. I had gone off to, to undergraduate school in New York City and then to graduate school uh, at Harvard Divinity School, where I was studying religion there and was meeting, of course, many uh, LGBTQ plus folks there, LDS and not LDS in these different uh, contexts uh, in church and my academic conversations outside of those uh, as well. And I was very interested in the way that other churches were also approaching these kinds of topics and noting, ah, your church is also having this struggle. And, oh, you're, I see that you guys are, are dealing with this as well. And others that had resolved this issue 20 years before within their church and said, this is how we're going to you know, deal with it. And, and uh, so I became kind of, you know, curious about those things. My own research was uh, was really focused on early Christianity, and that's my main scholarly area. But as I was watching the conversations develop in LDS circles, I sort of felt that the that they were a little more impoverished relative to some of my peers as I was looking at you guys have this great tradition and, and and so many like deep intellectual conversations and I would look and crave for great stuff that was out there in the LDS context and there just wasn't very much or at least not very much that was speaking to me and was attempting to answer my questions around these things it all kind of came to a head for me in 2008 uh with prop 8 which kind of hit me by surprise. And, and as I came to research this book, I, I realized how naive that was to be surprised by Prop 8. Uh, but it, it really did kind of throw me off a little bit. And as one of the only Latter-day Saints that was studying gender and sexuality and religion at the time, there are a handful of others, I kind of felt like maybe I should finally have something to say about this. And so the result of that is that I started to look at the theological angle on this question. And I saw the LDS approach to this primarily as a theological problem. And as I saw the the outgrowth of those conversations, I wrote an article called Towards a Post-Heterosexual Mormon Theology that uh, sort of launched me into this. And I thought, that's the last thing I ever will have to say about this. I've said my piece. Other people will have something smart to say. And, you know, I, I saw the, the conversations develop around this. And I saw many Latter-day Saints say, well, OK, I guess in theory on paper, 
you could say that there is a possibility for a post-heterosexual Mormon theology, but the tradition has never changed. The history has oh. never changed, you know? <laughs> and so I kept waiting around. It was like, well, some historian is going to obviously come along and debunk, debunk that. You know, I know that history, of course, always changes and ideas are always in flux, you know? And, uh, you know, I kept waiting and waiting and waiting and, and no one came around to do that. And so <laughs> I decided uh, after, after a few years, well, maybe I should take that on. Uh, and so I wrote an application for a fellowship at Harvard Divinity School's Women's Studies and Religion program. Almost no man had ever been accepted into the program over time. So I thought, oh, shoot, I'm safe. I'm not going to get this. And therefore, I won't have to write it. <laughs> and to my very disfortune, I got the phone call saying, hey, we'd love to accept you into this program. And uh, I was just over overwhelmed. I cried both in, in, in happiness and fear of now having to take this project on. And uh, I went off back back to Cambridge and and was able to really dive in and and develop the project. Originally, it was uh, it was conceived of as being like a whole history of Mormonism uh, from polygamy up to the modern period. And as I started writing, as I started getting into the things that were more, my most pressing questions at the beginning, I kept landing on the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And I kept saying, oh, this is when the modern views of Mormon sexuality uh, are, are developing. It's in this time period. And so as that progressed, I ended up kind of cutting off all of the earlier stuff and said, really the transition moment is in the post-World War II era. That's when we're seeing major changes around race. We're seeing major changes around the definitions of marriage and patriarchy. We're seeing major changes around the ideas of what homosexuality is. And I saw that as such a sort of a, a crucial moment in the history of Mormonism that the book starts with the 1950s and works up to the present to try to make sense of what the modern views of gender and sexuality are that the church has. That's a long answer opening uh, mm. to your question, but that's sort of what the book is, is, is attempting to do is to tell this history as faithfully as possible as I try to understand and make sense of what the church is doing. It's not a critical book. It's not one that is uh, arguing against it uh, or, or anything like that. I'm just trying to explain it, where it comes from, what it's all about, what its key ideas are, what its sort of uh, key, key assumptions are, where those ideas are coming from and so on. And so as best as I can, I'm offering that as the uh, as the best history that I could do of this period. Well, I have been profoundly changed by it, Taylor. Like I, when I was just telling you before we started recording, as we were setting things up and making a few plans, this book for me was one of the most, or maybe is the most important book I've ever read in helping me understand gender and sexuality in the context of my upbringing as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I really, really love how what you did is you situated in time and place that we are all a part of a context that is larger than ourselves and larger than our own tradition and larger than our own time. And the more we have a sense of how things fit together historically and how we got to where we are now in the in our ability to do that in a way that is critically thinking and also in some ways very neutral, meaning that I, like you, like I am interested in understanding the history, not assessing its goodness or badness. I think that will speak for itself as we understand better sort of the ebbs and flows of how things work. And then from there, we can make uh, informed choices about like, how do we situate ourselves in the context of more light and knowledge? And 
I personally feel, Taylor, that this book is a seminal book in the better understanding of how we can proceed. And it gives us, I think, or at least it's given me some confidence personally in my own views around the LGBTQ issue. Um, and also, I was just saying, like, if you look at history, some of this may, may or may not resonate with any of um, some of you out there listening, but Lester Bush is an individual who, as time has uh, revealed to us, he is maybe one of the main reasons why, and his writing, his very brave writing was one of the main reasons uh, why the the issue of Black people and the priesthood temple ban was reversed eventually. His writing, and I believe he was published in the Dialogue Journal, isn't that right? That was his writing. And then it ended up circulating through uh, important decision makers. And of course, there's a you know, a, a large number of other developments and whatnot, but he's a big reason why. And I, I think this book, Taylor, is is that kind of uh, caliber of importance personally for me. And so I thank you for your scholarship, the years that you gave. I'm so glad you got accepted to that program and wrote this book. And I'm so glad that we get to talk about this more today. So we are going to be hitting a big chunk of history, starting a post-World War II and then really going to present, and we're going to do our best to make this cohesive and uh, really easy to flow and easy to follow, um, but we've yet to do it. So it's always fun in a podcast to see how well we do, see if we can pull this off. So let's go ahead and get started, if we may. Taylor, I want you to talk to us about a couple of large principles that are important to understand to make sense of the entirety of this book. In other words, you have a few sort of founding ideas that kind of keep coming up over and over again that I'd like you to talk to us about because they will come up throughout each of these episodes as we're breaking down this book. Talk to us about one of the things that you your research seemed to bring up and that you really tried to articulate is that there's a tension between and you might you might have to help me say this better because <laughs> it's a little bit of a complex idea. There's a there's a tension between this idea in LDS theology that gender and sexuality is both eternally essential but also highly malleable and unstable. And that somehow this has been part of the complexity of making sense of this tricky topic really throughout the history of the church. Can you just set us up by talking us through that concept? Yeah, absolutely. And Valerie, I just want to thank you. The the compliments that you gave me about my work are so meaningful to me. And and I hope that I I, I hope that you're right. I, I don't know that that's true, that I'm at that level of caliber, but but uh, it, it means a great deal to me to see the way that this book is impacting people, uh, especially, as you said, that it sort of narrated your own life. Uh, my grandparents read this book and said, oh, my, who lived through all of these eras as well, you know, and they said, oh, my gosh, this told the story of our lives, oh, you know. Wow. And so it's such it just is so meaningful to me to get to hear that people uh, read the book and resonate with it on that level as a scholarly history. <laughs> you so... don't always get that. Right. So, You're so, you so welcome, much. Taylor. And my hope is that as you all listen to this, what you really want to do is go out and buy this book yourself, because what we are doing is we are, we're going to try to be thorough, but it's not going to be as good as jumping in and just really studying this book for yourself. So hopefully that'll be, this will be a jumping off point for you to get into this book and study it yourself like I have. So, yeah. So to, to answer your, your question directly, it's the general overall paradigm that Latter-day Saint historians, that even critics of the church often had about the church's teachings was that the church taught that gender was a fixed eternal characteristic. And we have this in the proclamation on the family. I'm sure your listeners are, are familiar with that. And that that is sort of an unchanging doctrine in, in church history. 
And, you know, feminists would argue against it and say, no, gender is socially constructed. And so, But as I started looking into this a little bit more, I was shocked to find how many uh, uh, Latter-day Saint leaders themselves taught that gender was fluid, that gender was not fixed, that gender was somehow a contingent feature of our identities. And they taught this in so many different ways, really in some respects up until the present, but they taught it uh, with respect to the nature of homosexuality, that, that sexuality itself could be changed from heterosexual to homosexual or, or vice versa, right? They taught this with respect to the, the effect that feminism would have on on both men and women and that uh and that in order to sort of make sure that gender was properly balanced it had to be socially enforced that is they they believed that it was not an unchanging thing but rather that it was highly susceptible to change and therefore needed to be highly guarded right and so i found this tension running through the way that the church itself has taught and thought about gender the way that it has acted on gender in psychological and political uh, uh venues as sort of caught between these two teachings that no gender never changes it's unchangeable it's an eternal thing and oh my gosh, gender is changing. We've got to do something to stop it from changing, right? And so I really wanted to try to understand the the history of modern Mormon sexuality is sort of wrestling with that tension. Yes, what you describe beautifully uh, seems to be thematic throughout all of the periods of history that you cover, that not only is it eternal, but somehow it's uh, incredibly malleable, so much so that it needs to be legislated and there needs to be laws and rules and um, lots and lots of mediation to hold on to this thing that supposedly is eternal in nature and unchanging. <laughs> and I just got a kick out of that as I was reading this the first time that really sunk in because it feels very like I hadn't thought about it, but I thought, wow, that really is a, a funny paradoxical tension. If it really is in fact as eternal in nature as we have been taught to believe on the one hand, it is very odd that we are so worried about how flimsy it is, as it were. <laughs> so uh, later on in a couple of episodes, uh, part of our notes we have is actually, we are going to actually walk through a variety of the uh, beliefs or the ideas that have worked their way through history in terms of this very um, idea. Not only gender as um, how to manage it here because of its instability and malleability, but also some of the ideas uh, that the church has forwarded as far as what what is exactly premortal gender. And there are a fascinating number of different ideas that have been forwarded, sometimes even in the same era, that are completely contradictory. And then there are also some really quite amusing ideas that have been forwarded about postmortal gender, which got uh, me laughing as well. This is uh, for a scholarly book. It actually it gave me some good. Uh, I had some good laughs, too. So, you know, <laughs> that's a good thing, I think. Okay, one more thing uh, that I want, as far as like setting the stage, another theme that kind of runs through this book is your emphasis on the importance of words. That language seems to be something that is consistently and historically, uh, words matter and they are played with differently. And so just talk us through your thought process on that. I became really interested in the way uh, of how, uh, this is especially, I think, true around uh, around homosexuality and the terms that the church uses in in this respect. And it sort of goes through various phases of when the church, you know, first is talking about something called sodomy, and we'll unpack this, I'm sure, later. It starts to sort of 
tentatively embrace the word homosexual and homosexuality. There's a brief period that I maybe mentioned of pervert becomes the primary term that church leaders are using in that period as well. It goes from sodomy to pervert and then homosexual. And then they move away from that and they say, we shouldn't say anything at all because the word itself can cause it, you know? And so there's all this like, don't say it, don't say it. And then a sort of alternative term pops up of same-sex attraction as the like, okay, this is the safe clinical term. You know, homosexuality still has a lot of danger around it. And so we're not going to use that term. So we're going to use same-sex attraction. And then we finally get over the last, you know, 15 years or so, church leaders coming back around and saying gay and lesbian, saying LGBTQ in, in uh, you know, public statements and, and so on. And, and so we have a, a return to sort of a, a, a re-embrace of these terms, not necessarily as condemnation this time, but more as an attempt to show some kind of acceptance and respect. And so the church is really wrestling with uh, uh, battles about words and the power of words throughout this whole period, uh, believing that they have a kind of uh, a quality to, to, to shape reality itself. And so a lot of these debates about sexuality are actually debates about terminology, about words. Um, and, you know, this is not an unfamiliar culture war issue to uh, in our present time where we're still fighting about the proper terminology of, of what we call things, you know, uh, do we call do we call it gay marriage or now do we just call it marriage, right? Like what, what, what do we mean when we say these kinds of words? So, so these are still ongoing battles, but Again, I was sort of surprised. I, I didn't I didn't know when I was just trying to make sense of why does the church keep changing what it's calling it and getting into when they start to explain why they're doing it, how surprised I was by these battles over the power of language itself to shape reality. Well, and I, I really noticed the languaging changes, but the language remains important and meaningful. And I really was struck most, uh, the, the one that struck me the most was we don't call someone a homosexual because to actually say the word is then sort of defining them, which once again sort of flies in the face of all of these varying doctrines or theologies around the the you know the nature of gender and how it's essential, but it's malleable and it's stable, but yet it's instable. And so they kind of these topics both actually kind of kind of collide with one another throughout history. So very, very interesting, something that I once again hadn't thought about until I was, you know, reading this and thinking, yeah, that's very true. And I find myself even still sometimes saying same gender attracted, not knowing that that was a way that the LDS church sort of co-opted the term because the other words were not okay, right? Like, and and that's kind of the, the more um, socially appropriate way to talk about it here in our faith tradition, you know, starting in, I think about the nineties or something like that. And so I find myself sort of starting to say that and unsaying it and just starting to now just use what's more sort of widely understood or what what the actual LGBTQ movement themselves, how they like to self-define is what I feel like is the most respectful way to to use words because I do believe they are they are important, right? Exactly. Hey everybody, the Latter-day Struggles podcast began on a whim and has become my passion project, my vocation and my full-time employment. As you might imagine, the content you enjoy is the culmination of thousands of hours of planning, study, production, editing, and other behind the scenes work, all in an effort to be a valuable resource to you, my audience here in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If you feel that what I offer has added value, direction, and strength in your faith journey, I now invite you to financially support my work 
to help ensure that I can continue to offer you and others this high-quality content in the future. You can now make donations through my Patreon account, conveniently linked in my show notes at the bottom of each episode. Your donations, either small or large, one-time donations or those made on a monthly basis will help me continue to provide you with high-quality, frequent, psychologically and spiritually sound content for your faith journey. And for your willingness to support me, I offer you my most sincere gratitude. Thank you. Now, back to the show. Okay, so let's move on if we may. I want to go ahead and just let's be, uh, let's go along a timeline. And for the rest of this episode today, I think it would be great for you to talk to us about Okay, here was another like mind blower for me. And it was it it was one of those like, oh, that makes so much sense, but I never put it together. Talk to us about the idea of race, hierarchy, and gender and how these connect. So this for those of you out there listening and thinking, okay, we're talking about LGBTQ, this may feel very disconnected, but I guarantee it is not. It's really important to set the stage and understand how these things actually are, in fact, very interconnected if you look at history through a wide lens. Okay, so take it away, Taylor. Yeah, th- there are multiple ways in which I, even beyond what I write of this book, where I think that race ra- race comes in. But I'll tell tell the story of how this came to affect me and how I, how I sort of started to see this connection. I mentioned that uh, originally the project started off as like I was going to start with polygamy and work up till today. And I thought, okay, the church, everybody knows the church has had one major change in the way that it has defined marriage between plural marriage and monogamous marriage. And that that's the one big thing. And as I started looking into this, I was like, no, 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 no. The church had a major fight. And in some ways it's still ongoing in some respects, right? A major fight over the definition of legitimate marriages really recently in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s and and beyond. Again, up until today, there are still lingering quotations that get that get recycled, barring interracial marriage as uh, uh, either discouraged or doctrinally forbid, forbidden, depending on the time period that we're in. And there are competing ideas or, around this. But I realized Latter-day Saints fought about the definition of marriage and what kinds of marriages can be sealed in the temple within my lifetime, you know, and I was growing up around around this, that interracial marriage was considered to be an illegitimate form of marriage. This is, you know, changes a little bit in 1978, of course, when the church uh, receives a revelation that all uh, worthy men can receive the priesthood. But in the exact same issue of the church news in which the revelation is pr- is printed, there is another article one page later that says interracial marriage still discouraged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, even the doctrinal change didn't really undo this uh, cultural issue around interracial marriages as being uh, a, a little bit taboo in the church. And they they sort of go through various phases of being entirely forbidden and somewhat forbidden, discouraged. You know, there's a whole history history there. But seeing the way that race was sort of the last time that we fought about marriage really illuminated for me what was at stake in the priesthood ban. 
And it was very much about enforcing segregation and especially enforcing segregated marriage. Whenever they talked about why we needed to, to have a priesthood ban, they always said, oh my gosh, if, if we don't have a priesthood ban, then you know there's gonna be interracial marriage and children of interracial backgrounds, and they're gonna be not able to hold the priesthood. And it was about sex. They were freaking out about sex. And, and one way to prevent that was to maintain a priesthood ban, was to, was to sort of create a boundary, a doctrinal and, and ecclesiastical boundary between the races that would, uh, that would enforce the, these sort of uh, uh, interracial uh, marriage bans. So I, I just started to see the way that race is integrated into this history. It was so, so important for understanding modern views of sexuality in the church. It sounds to me like what you're saying and heightening from what I read is that the church, and maybe this is not unique to our church, but I've only been in our church. So I guess I can only speak for our church. We have been consumed with uh, concern about the, the idea of marriage. And uh, I think concurrent with that, with the idea of hierarchy within marriage. And that's interesting. And there's so much that we could just say on that, which I think we will say quite a bit as we uh, as we continue to speak with one another, but something that you said also in this book that just, this is another big picture sort of thing, but we are going to follow this, this thread of thought throughout all of these episodes. What Taylor discovered in his research is that it would seem that the church moves from a, a really heavy focus on the racial order of marriage, then over to the patriarchal order of marriage, and then to the heterosexual order of marriage. And that that is, now this is where I'm gonna throw out my thoughts and I want you to correct me if I'm, I get off track, okay, Taylor? But it seems to me like what happened in these three various movements, and we are going to go deeper into these movements because these are like historical and they follow, of course, the larger culture, right? But as soon as, uh, say for example, we've got the racial order of marriage that the church is consumed with concern about, and it's all based on hierarchy and power and priesthood and whatnot, it falls out of favor when the culture starts waking up to the fact that segregating Black people is straight up wrong. And of course, it seems as if Christian churches, and certainly ours included, uh, we always are just a little behind the game, <laughs> maybe a half generation to a whole generation behind, or, you know, and then some. And then when that shifts and becomes so socially unacceptable, and there's, an, I think, a general enlightenment culturally, then we move to another topic or another focus, which is where we move to the patriarchal order of marriage, which is uh, a real emphasis on the, the gender roles of the male and female, more independent of race, even though I know that there's been like, a, and I'm with you, I think you and I are probably around the same age, in my own life inside of my own family, there were things said about the inappropriateness of marriage between races. And I'm, I'm not that old. Well, I like to believe I'm not that old. Let's just say that. <laughs> but, but that, that is not that long ago. And there were also shifts and changes in patriarchal order, you know, what a marriage looked like uh, in the church, which we're going to go through that. And then you move on to really a softening of that. And we're going to talk about that to a hyper focus on the heterosexual order of marriage. And so once again, this beautiful thing that you helped me understand better was we have shifted and changed. And oftentimes that shift and change actually follows culture. Am I wrong there? 
you, you, I, all of that is well, well said, and and I, I'll just you know supplement it with with a little bit. You know, it's not the case that there is like a clean break where the sure. racial order of marriage, and then now we're doing this. They're always overlapping and they're intermingled, but it's a it's a point of emphasis where one starts to become more important. And as we see in the 1950s and 60s, interracial marriage and the sort of racial order of marriage and these racial hierarchies is really, really important. But those are being attacked, as you said, culturally. And uh, and so the church really starts to shift its focus and shift its definition of what marriage is to a new form of marriage. It's patriarchal marriage. As long as it's patriarchal, it's fine. It, it can be interracial or not interracial, but if patriarchal marriage becomes the, the broader category that can sort of subsume all legitimate marriages. And this is in response to, of course, the feminist movement, which is which is arising uh, in this time period. And again, there are long roots in the 19th century of both racial order and the patriarchal order of marriage as well. But but why they start to take on such importance in the 60s, 50s, 60s and 70s is, of course, these broader social movements that we're experiencing in America at the time. Yes, yeah, so as you, you mentioned, I try to argue that. Uh, the patriarchal order of marriage is also starting to be weakened, uh, both inside and outside the church, and it gets replaced with a new definition of marriage. Well, as long as it's heterosexual, it's fine, right? right. It can be non, it can be an egalitarian marriage, and it's perfectly acceptable, right? So rather than seeing that boundary uh, of, you know, is it only monogamous or is it polygamous as being the big question that Latter-day Saints face, I try to say, no, we're going through all sorts of different shifting definitions of what legitimate legitimate marriage is to the present one of heterosexual marriage, where that can accommodate uh, egalitarian marriages and they can accommodate interracial marriages as long as it's heterosexual. But those marriages were not legitimate in those previous orders. An egalitarian marriage would have been just considered just as wicked and as evil and as problematic as an interracial marriage was in the 1950s. And so I want to kind of highlight those shifts that are more subtle. There wasn't a revelation. Right. That said, oh, now we're getting rid of the patriarchal order of marriage. They just stopped talking about it. There's literally like in 1982 is the last time you ever hear that in general conference. you know. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they just abandoned the doctrine. It sort of lives on on occasion. You know, of course, uh, it, again, I never want to say like there's a clean break. It always has a, a long afterlife. But there are these shifts that are happening in the def very definition of marriage that are really foundational to how the church understands marriage that I wanted to highlight to show how fluid and how recent the church has changed its doctrines on marriage. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to circle you back just a little bit, Taylor. You're getting too far ahead of me because oh, there are sorry. a few. <laughs> that's okay. There, there are a couple of things that I think are really important to set the stage for. Uh, because you talk about this research being um, a really like the the important starting point for some of these made well they're major shifts but they're subtle and I think that's why this work is so incredibly important because it's hard to it's hard to understand something that's subtle unless you really take a deep slow close look at it so let's just talk for a second about post World War II there are a couple of reasons why this is specifically important that we are shifting away from the racial order of marriage. And I want to just spend a few minutes talking about this patriarchal order of marriage. I'm going to throw a couple of big topics at you and have you break them down. Okay. Okay. So Taylor, what I want you to do is I want you to take us back to post-World War II and talk about the important factors that play into this idea that the patriarchal order of marriage on a worldwide scale is a really, really important thing to sort of um, maintain and stabilize civilization. Can you talk about that for a minute? 
Yeah, you know, you as you've mentioned with your nesting doll analogy, I love that earlier. I really want to understand Mormon culture not as a self-contained thing, but rather embedded in broader trends. And to understand that when the church is making these changes, when the church is defining its doctrine, it's not doing so based on an internal conversation of like, oh my gosh, I just read this scripture, that's our new doctrine. They're responding to these broader uh, trends in, uh, in American and global culture, as you mentioned. And one of the big shifts that happens in American culture after World War II is a resurgence of uh, of an emphasis on the nuclear family. We have the leave it to beaver, you know, um, model. We have this new kind of housewife model. We have the new father, you know, goes off to work and comes home and uh, these very traditional gender roles. That's not what it looked like before World War II. That, in fact, during World War II, women were the ones who were working in the factories while men were off fighting a war. We had a very different gender culture there. and uh, But there's a sort of reaction to that saying, oh, no, 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 we've got to get back. So in fact, the 1950s is not a preservation of a traditional. It's an imposition of a new tradition that's wow. ha- that, that, ha- that we see in America. And there are some specific reasons why that becomes so important and becomes really a part of American propaganda about its own self-identity during this time period. We had just defeated the Nazis, obviously. Uh, The new war that we're fighting is the Cold War against the communists. And uh, people are sort of looking at that and saying, listen, they are doing religion wrong. They're atheists. They're doing the family wrong. They, you know, don't don't necessarily believe in the nuclear family like we do. And they're doing gender wrong because they're feminists too. Not, you know, these communists are feminists. They're sending their women off to the factories, even though we just did that too. (laughs) Right. And so, so the argument about American identity being based on this sort of traditional family, these traditional norm, traditional, I'll put in quotes, because again, they're, they're an invented tradition is a part of a kind of broader anti-communist movement uh, that's happening in America. So a lot of people point to things like the Lavender Scare, which is this, you know, U.S. government backed uh, uh, effort to get rid of all of the people who are suspected of homosexuality who worked for the federal government. And so we've got a kind of like McCarthy era, uh, you know, anti-homosexuality backlash that's going on during this period as well. We, we've already talked about, you know, advertising and, and and so much of American culture is sort of promoting this traditional family norm. And that's not just because like, oh, we believe in the family. It's really because that's about national security. And Americans came to believe, and Latter-day Saints reflected this in their own rhetoric, that the health and stability of the nation itself was uh, uh, dependent on the good sexual and family morals that the church, uh, I'm sorry, that Americans have. And we see that even reflect, jumping forward a little bit, I know we don't want to get too far ahead, but this is the argument of the proclamation on the family as well, is this sort of civilizational and national stability depends on a kind of moral and sexual order around heterosexuality and around, around patriarchy, uh, uh, around racial orders, as we had t- discussed earlier as well. Um, uh, and so so a lot of the rhetoric the, of the way that the church is coming to define its own teachings are based in this American culture of anti-communism and uh, a sort of particular sort of family as the antidote to communism. Okay, so thank you for that. And I, what you just brought up to my mind is something, What the one last thing I want us to talk about to round off this episode, because yeah, we're just getting going. As you can see, this is so rich. There's so much to talk about here. And my brain is kind of exploding. I'm having to literally take notes because Taylor's saying something and I have like four thoughts to follow it. So, okay. So Taylor, 
we're in this post-World War II, you're talking about we need to save society by preserving this nuclear family. I think it's important to also throw in one more complication if, you, if you're a Latter-day Saint. If you're looking at post-World War II, <laughs> I hadn't thought about the period of World War II in the context of church history until I read this just a few days ago, reread as I was studying. And we are not very many years post-polygamy. We have both of the manifestos, but of course, those of us who've done any amount of study know that the manifestos were not really fully enforced for several decades after they came out. And so if we're looking at uh, post-World War II, this period of time that you're talking about, we are a culture within our church that has been shunned and we are not a traditional family. <laughs> uh, and I think I'd like to, to, for you to talk for just a minute, Taylor, about what connection is there between our desire to acclimate to our larger American culture in the face of our, our history as this complex body of people that are really not necessarily have not followed uh, the norms of the culture at large. Can you spend a little bit of time talking about how that all plays into this uh, messy picture? Yeah, by, by the time we're in the 1950s and, and even up into the 1960s, many of the church leaders, their parents or certainly their grandparents were polygamists, right? This was very much a part of the the culture, and the, or they knew, you know, so their their friends or colleagues were, right? You know, it was it was a live issue in their history, in in a way that it's hard for us maybe to comprehend, being so so far out ourselves, right? But and this is, you know, for for many of us who uh, uh, who are Latter Day Saints, maybe outside of the Utah period, this is uh, outside of Utah. This is how many people still understand who Latter Day Saints right. are. Oh, you're the polygamists, right? <laughs> uh, but it haunted them even more than it haunted us, right? Or than it haunts us. And so uh, the church really tries to assimilate into American culture in the post polygamy era using a variety of strategies. But one of the most important that it uses is leaning into a very traditional heterosexual, uh, patriarchal marriage. Yes. And this becomes a way of like, no, 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 we're good Americans. And this is a way of also, you know, emphasizing our, our bona fide whiteness as well. Uh, we're good white Americans too. Yeah. And so, uh, so this becomes, this becomes a way for Latter-day Saints to sort of gain credibility is to demonstrate the, the goodness of their families. And so we're, we're, you know, our great stars, the Osmonds are a good family, right? We have, we have all of these ways in which we're sort of projecting and marketing a certain kind of, of, uh, family-ness as our, as, as the way of showing that we're good Americans, we're good anti-communists, we're good white people, right? And so, uh, so yeah, the church, I think sort of is, participating in this culture in part as a way of uh, of marketing itself, of reviving its respectability in American culture. And I would dare say that we will touch on this a little bit more historically later on, but their desire to be accepted as part of the bona fide religious right is probably in part because of this history that they were not accepted. They were not. And it, it, it's a big, it's a bit of a fight. I mean, I live in the Midwest. I think you live in the Midwest or on the East coast somewhere, but we, you know, historically we uh, have not been well received and, you know, for a variety of reasons, but one of the big ones, interestingly enough is because of our, you know, our off kilter early doctrines on polygamy. I mean, that has certainly followed us for a long period of time. And so trying to prove our viability um, as part of a good Christian 
normal person <laughs> has been something that has been a little bit of an uphill battle. And I think one of the ways that we did this that I'm learning from you is by trying to have this heterosexual, patriarchal, traditional American family, which of course, by default, lumped us with the same problems that a lot of the other evangelical Protestant white Americans, their belief systems being very, very homophobic. And so I think that's a big piece of this as well. That Does that make sense? Does that sound right? Uh, absolutely. Yes. Okay. I think it's time for us to close this episode and we will jump right back in next time. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Latter-day Struggles podcast. If you haven't already done so, would you pause and rate and write a positive review on this podcast? It is incredibly helpful for people who are in a faith crisis or a faith journey to look at those ratings and reviews and see from what you say that what they're going to get is a faith expanding experience through this podcast. And remember, those who are afraid of the content that we tackle here, they tend to be ones that do jump on and rate and review. So if you take 30 seconds and do that for me, that would be uh, incredibly appreciated. Additionally, if you're interested in joining one of my space-limited support and processing groups, if you would like to purchase an online course designed to help you through your faith expansion journey at your own pace, or if you're interested in looking into some time-limited consulting with me or with some ongoing coaching with a member of my team, you can find all of the information for all of these products at latterdaystruggles.com. That's latterdaystruggles.com. And finally... The Latter-day Struggles podcast is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcasting Network. You can support the Dialogue Foundation by subscribing to DialogueJournal.com. We can thank the Dialogue Foundation for being the founding body of progressive Mormon thought. Please support them. Dialogue Podcast Network.